Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, fellow Creative Control listeners. My name is Mac Cameron. I live in Toronto, and I have been listening to Creative Control with Vish Khanna since episode 119. That featured all five members of one of my favorite bands, Constantine's. I listen backwards from there and then forwards, and I know it sounds, you know, over the top or cliche, but finding the show changed the course of my life. It inspired me to pursue a career in radio and to do what I can to support the arts in my community and across the country. So I give to Creative Control because I feel like I owe the show and Vish uh, for helping me figure out what the hell to do with my life. Beyond that, I give to Creative Control because I think independent media, especially insightful, entertaining, thoughtful, and thorough independent media is something that is worth paying for. What I appreciate about Creative Control is Vish's ability to treat Canadian artists, or any artist for that matter, with the seriousness and appreciation he would any other artist. His excellent rapport with people like Steve Albini and the members of Fugazi and Stephen Malcolmus and others have earned him international appreciation. However, it's his trove of interviews with what I consider to be the most exciting generation of Canadian musicians, conducted out of genuine passion and interest, that makes this show so special. I think it is an archive of some really exciting music that is way, way underreported on and appreciated. That's why I contribute to Creative Control with Vishkana, and I hope you will do the same. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash creative control today. I'm Visha's wife, and I will love him no matter what you do. And now he has me on the record saying that. Luke Branch is a musician, artist, and record label co-owner based in London, England. One of the primary forces behind Cool Thing Records, Branch is also the singer, songwriter, and guitarist in the band Asylums, who recently released their excellent album, Genetic Cabaret. Luke and I caught up recently to discuss modern life and politics in England, how seeing Beck and the Prodigy as a teenager, and living life in lockdown more recently has influenced him as an artist. Stories about recording an Asylums album with Steve Albini at Electrical Audio in Chicago, future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creative control and Massey Hall's concert film series live at masseyhall.com where you can stream dozens of 30-minute films for free including performances by past podcast guests like Born Ruffians, plus in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. This is the 576th episode of Creative Control, featuring the charming Luke Branch of Asylums with your host, me, Vish Khanna.
Hi, Luke. How's it going? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's nice to have you uh, on the show. Uh, first of all, where in the world are you? I'm in a town called Southend, which is about an hour out of London in the UK, and uh, it's doing a pretty good impression of a Smiths chorus right now. It's pissing rain, very grey. Uh, <laughs> of the cement and the sky have got the same kind of complexion at the minute. So, Isn't that normal? That's our general impression of drab England. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, what you're saying, really, it's a norm, <laughs> normal day. It's just a normal day for you. It is a normal. Well, all days at the moment have a have a degree of uh, non normality to them, if that's even a word. Well, but, yeah, uh, right. But yeah, no, it's pretty regular, pretty regular weather wise. Let's say that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I have been talking to people about the uh, lack of normalcy uh, these days uh, on the show. Uh, how are things going for you uh, in England uh, during our uh, pandemic times? Also, there's uh, I don't know what the social unrest situation is like in England. I've seen some. Uh, protests, but that has been spreading worldwide. So, uh, I, to me, those are the two main uh, collective things we're all going through. It feels like, but I, I'd love your perspective on both of them. Uh, tell me yeah, about I, tell me about your pandemic life, and uh, and uh, I guess in terms of Black Lives Matter and, and other social causes, what's going on in England? So, kind of at the minute, we're kind of uh, just the, the government have just put some new rules in place: the rule of six, where no more than six people can meet up at any one time. Uh, and some other things like some curfews are coming into play um, in the next few days uh, for restaurants and bars. So everything's kind of going in the wrong direction, depressingly. But yeah, there's a, there's there's been a lot of national and 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 regional kind of Black Lives Matters protests. There was one in Southend a few months back, and I suppose like the other layer of difficulty that the country is having, I suppose at the minute, is the realization of what it really means to leave the EU as well. Um, oh, yeah, of course. So, yeah. So all those negotiations are going on and getting kind of uh, more and more intense. I thought there was no more left on the intensity scale, but it, it seems to have found a new, <laughs> just a new kind of um, few percent of uh, stress to throw into the mix. So I have to admit, it's quite, a, um, it's quite an intense time over here. But, you know, from my personal perspective, I dip in for a couple of hours, check the news, read everything that I can get my hands on from all sides of the political spectrum. And then I just go back to reading comics and listening to records and trying <laughs> to find some solace. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know you to be a, a political scientist or anything like that. But for some of us who live in maybe social media vacuums, the Brexit stuff seemed to be going one way in terms of uh, its popularity. I mean, there was obviously the the vote, the referendum on it, and sure. that surprised the world that people uh, seemed to vote for uh, for it to be enacted. And then it was this huge multi-year saga uh, of yeah. whether it would actually come to pass. And it seemed like your uh, prime minister, Boris uh, Johnson, there was a kind of a lame duck. Like every time he tried to make it happen, it wouldn't work. And, you know, that just seemed like he didn't have the mandate. But then he won. Uh, the election, and I, it surprised some of us, uh, again, those of us who live in the vacuum of this doesn't seem like it's going to uh, happen. What is your perspective on that? And can you, can you give us your firsthand perspective? Like, what did we miss uh, there in terms of his popularity and his viability as a political figure? Because he seems to us uh, like a buffoon uh, <laughs> on some level. What is it like for you there? Well, I definitely sit on the left of things politically. I I, I can't relate to a, a great deal of uh, what, the, what the Tory party do. And when it comes to Boris, I think the reason that he connected on that last election was that Labour was in quite a bad state. Mm. And I, th I think that there had just been so many years of, 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 of kind of polarised discussion around the Brexit saga that kind of it just had reached a point where people wanted some sort of closure. And I think, you know, the get Brexit done message, which the Tories perpetuated during that period, was a lot more simple to understand than Labour's position, which was kind of a series of like a, a staggered approach to finding a solution, which just didn't land with the general public. And I think that that kind of put him in a in a position to win and, you know, kind of, you know, a lot of people that had previously voted Labour voted Tory, you know, so and, and the Labour Party had a lot of kind of issues with uh, anti-Semitism and things like that that were all layered into the yeah to the reason why people were finding it hard to connect with them. And in the last few months, since Keir Starmer's taken over the Labour Party, they seem to have found their sort of voice again a little bit. And um, 
a quite a strong opposition. And, and so just now, I think really, you know, I have no idea what's going to happen. Uh, I'm worn out from it. I mean, I'm always of the opinion that I'd like to try and make things work with people rather than sever ties. So it's hard, again, to just sort of what, you know, I'm not I'm not criticizing people that voted to leave. That's their um, personal uh, choice. But for me, it seems uh, like we're, it's like a backward move in my mind. But that's just my perspective. There is kind of a stereotype about British people that, uh, you know, they're kind of like, let's just get this done, done with it, move on. Uh, so we were, I think, based on that stereotype, I think some of us were surprised how long this saga went on about Brexit. Uh, sure. And, and so is that stereotype? I think what you're saying is that there's something to that stereotype. People are just like, we got to move on from this, like whatever it is. Let's just get this. Let's stop talking about it. I definitely think the uh, British have the ability to be black and white about things without a doubt, you know, <laughs> but unfortunately with a move of that magnitude, there's a fuckload of gray, you know? So, yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I think kind of, yeah, maybe like just, you know, the other thing was it was being turned into a political football as well. So I think, you know, it dragged on much longer than it needed to in the lead up to an election year. So uh, we've talked about at least three things. If you if we count uh, the pandemic and the social protests, uh, the unrest uh, and, and Brexit. Those are three things we've talked about, I think, from kind of a universal uh, perspective. I wonder about your firsthand perspective, your own personal feelings. Yeah. I mean, you've expressed them. How have these things impacted you as a as a person living in England and, and also as an artist? I'm curious. I think they really have kept crept into my art uh, more than I live quite an insular life at home. You know, I kind of I really I'm a home body, really. If I'm not on tour, I try to avoid going out. I just have always been that way. So I kind of build a little world of <laughs> kind of books and music and stuff like that. That kind of is just total escapism. But I do uh, I do follow politics a lot. And um, I think during the time that I was writing the most recent uh, album with Asylums. It certainly was the first. So at the beginning of that process, I, was, I got interested in the politics of the 1980s and sort of, you know, the Thatcher era and the bands that were having opinions during that time. And, uh, and then as I was kind of developing like more and more of an interest in that period, I was noticing parallels with things that were going on in present politics in the, in the country as the Tories sort of became stronger and stronger and uh, and I think just the thing that really I, I try to stay neutral. I don't like to preach on records. I don't feel um, educated enough. But I certainly I would say my just observing it. I just never known anything so polarized in all my life. Mm. Um, I just I couldn't. It just was endless, you know, just endless vitriol and just and and and, um, and it was quite scary, really. You know, I, I, I I've seen families fall out. Um, even within my own family, there's different, uh, you know, spectrum of opinion. And um, I just, I find it all very, like, just toxic, really. And, and so some of that crept into some of the music I was making. Um, but then at the same time, I, you know, my wife uh, and I were planning to have a child. So there was this, like, ray of hope and optimism in tandem with the utter despair. <laughs> yeah, so, right, uh, right. So, so it was a very, uh, you know, kind of confusing uh, period for me just to even work out you know, how I was feeling. I think maybe some of that's come out in the record that we made. So the record is Genetic Cabaret, and it it, <laughs> it, it was made and, and it was written and made uh, well before uh, some of the things that we've been discussing kind of really, I mean, I guess not the social issues. Those have always been there. And I guess Brexit was has been lurking in the background this whole time. But certainly uh, the pandemic, like even the pandemic has been politicized, uh, certainly yeah. where I'm calling you from. Well, less so in Canada, but still... It, it has been politicized. Uh, people take sides and they it's b- b- weirdly become uh, just like our general health and welfare uh, has become a left right issue, which is very weird. Uh, yeah. Uh, and it, it has it, that's the case in England as well. Right. People sort of have chosen sides uh, in terms of autonomy versus uh, the collective good and what needs to be done. Is that is that fair to say? I think so. Maybe um, in just recent months, there's been a slight step towards the center from the left, which has changed the balance a little. But because they're not in power, it's, uh, yeah, right. it's not really changing anything just yet. And I'm hopeful that it will. So have you been, I guess the uh, one of the points of my question here 
or line of questioning is, have you been writing since some of these issues have been heightened and some of our reality, like, I mean, one of the things that I've found fascinating about all of this self-isolation is, is what we've kind of learned about the way we have been functioning for decades, centuries, you know, just the things we've accepted as normal uh, behavior and things or conventional behavior. And now with this, uh, I was just texting with a friend about this. Like, I am very dismayed that so many people are getting ill and that the mortality rates are so high. I'm disturbed about the fact that my kids, uh, we've chosen to uh, have our kids do virtual school until we figure out. uh, By the way, as I'm speaking to you, we just... uh, uh, Canada has just announced that certain provinces, including Alberta, where I live, are in a second right. second wave. So, so anyway, we are. I'm dismayed by lots of stuff, uh, obviously, to do with this. But I'm also uh, gratified by the time we have uh, to our back. Like I feel like we got some time back to, you know, I don't. I'm not buying bus passes and getting up at six a.m. Uh, to to catch a bus to work. Uh, you know, uh, making packed lunches. All these things. I, I know that sounds very petty on some level, but like uh, some of that stuff we may never have to do again uh, or, yeah. or it's been proven that it maybe wasn't necessary. Again, very minor. I, I think you know where I'm coming from. Uh, I, I just think I absolutely do. Yeah. yeah. So have you had that? Have you kind of learned things or, or had some sort of illuminating uh, experiences uh, throughout all the dark stuff that we've been going through? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and uh, you know, maybe with just the slightest pang of guilt in the back of my mind, really, because sure. the situation is so severe. But for, for for me, you know, like kind of, you know, I, I work in education a couple of days a week, teaching uh, kids to play music, and uh, I've done that for years to support myself as a musician in and out of touring and you know what have you. And I was sent home, you know, at the beginning of the lockdown, and I kind of got home, and from, from I felt like you know that scene in. Uh, Forrest Gump where he just sits on the windowsill and just Jenny's gone and he's just kind of he's just kind of <laughs> mulling it over for a, for a while I kind of did that for about a month and just kind of then just built a studio in my uh, like in the label have like an office in my back garden it's kind of stock room stroke office kind of thing a stroke recording studio thing it's yeah. quite small quite cozy and I just kind of built a little built a little setup out there and then I just gave myself a structure I was like I just write for x amount of hours per day I set myself the goal of kind of writing a double album who knows if it will become that but and then a few days in something beautiful really happened for me like um there's a a, a TV presenter called Gail Porter in the UK who um we're friends with we have been for about three years and um she's always like checking in on the band and seeing how we are and stuff and she's just a lovely person Mm. lovely sort of enthusiast of music and she said i've got this guitar you know like it's it used to belong to the rolling stones i think you know i bought it for my boyfriend blah 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 and she's like do you want it and i was like oh no i don't want it i I would feel guilty (laughs) and then and she said like just borrow it and then she she couriered it to my house in a pink um sleeping bag and I got it out and it was just like the most beautiful guitar I'd ever played and songs just like pouring out like, and it sort of gave me, I was like, Oh, kind of everything happens for a reason kind of thing. Like kind of, this is a time to woodshed it and just, just stack up those tunes. I just, I was approaching the release of genetic cabaret and I love writing. It's my great passion in the arts. I just can't get enough. So I just sort of disappeared into that for a, for about three months and, um, you know, I've just we just started putting the music together as a band, you know. So it's actually, you know, on an artistic level, it was just so lovely for the world to stop going at such a fast pace. I've always struggled with that. Yeah, um, yeah. But I also have, I'm a compulsive worker as well, so <laughs> I kind of do it to myself. So I agree with you. It was nice to make dinner for my son. It was nice to, you know, just go for a walk just for exercise. And, yeah, you know, yeah. Just small, small little details in life like that. Normally for me, I... I had a recurring dream for the first sort of five years of doing this band where I was on a wave and I was just trying to hold on to all my stuff, <laughs> you know? I yeah, just, right. I was like just going to get sucked into this massive wave and just lose everything, you know? So, but kind of this was more like like a nice meditation on, you know, what what life could be like, you know, anxiety levels come down, creativity went up. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about too. Like just having that time to... To, to prepare a proper dinner for your family, you know, instead of yeah. rushing home and being home for five or six and then trying to, you know, get something together. 
at yeah, the, at the last, yeah. It's it's uh, <laughs> even if you've planned it, it's just kind of exhausting. So I I revel in that. May I ask what kind of guitar you received exactly? Yeah, it's a Gibson. I think it's called a Firebird, but I don't know anything about musical equipment really. I'm looking at it right now. It's uh, Firebirds it's, are fairly distinct looking. It's a, like an odd shape. Yeah. It's kind of like got like a sort of orangey wood color with a brown headstock and kind mm. of the classic Gibson logo. Um, I'll give you a few bars from it later on in the interview. <laughs> no, it really uh, sings. It's beautiful. Well, I was just going to say, because I've had guitars. I've been around guitars like this. A friend of mine, uh, when I, a roommate of my uh, now wife's, uh, had a his father's old uh, Gibson, acoustic Gibson. And there's some just, isn't it weird? There's some, when you get excited about an instrument or it's sort of fun to play, isn't that, it's so interesting how much that can, you know, just spark your creativity, isn't it? Like, I remember uh, when I used to write sort of songs here and there that, like, there was just an outpouring with that guitar that I didn't have <laughs> with uh, my own. And it's the same thing. It's sort of preposterous. It's probably psychological, but you had the same experience. You were so excited by the gift of the guitar and, and some knowledge of its history that you felt something happened, didn't it? It really did. And, you know, kind of I compartmentalized my creative history as a songwriter into like my granddad bought me this Telecaster when I was 17. And that's I still use that now. And then at a point in time, I got kind of I was felt I was repeating myself as a writer. So I, I taught myself how to play piano and that I got like a good few albums worth out of that. And then I feel like this this gift just kind of set me up on a new trajectory uh, to, to some slightly different type of material. I noticed it kind of had a slightly more soulful edge to it and stuff. Um which we've been hinting at, I think maybe on the last couple of records a little bit, but yeah, yeah. it just—it just, it was like a new. I just—it was like you know when you get like a, a new pair of trainers that you really like, and you, all of a sudden you you get confident for a few weeks before you tread in dog shit, you know. What I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, well, I appreciate all of this uh, insight, Luke, and uh, you you talked about uh, uh, this album, Genetic Cabaret, a little, and you referenced your record label, which is called Cool Thing, right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah. So I I think for those who may be uh, unfamiliar with uh, you and your trajectory, um, I want to get at that a little bit in terms of your background uh, as a writer. Uh, I detect from your accent that you are uh, not from Omaha, Nebraska in any way. You are uh, born and raised in England. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I'm an Essex boy, but... Um... I probably couldn't be further from the Essex Boys stereotype. <laughs> <laughs> what is the what is the Essex Boys? So again, I don't know that stereotype per se specifically. What does that mean? Uh, kind of like a um, maybe like a bit of a wide boy gangster kind of uh, likes looking after the car, swigging a few beers at the weekend. I mean, hardly anyone's like that, but that's I think you know kind of slightly more brash, skinhead, you know, earring in one ear, you know. I look like Sideshow Bob on the Atkins diet. You know what I mean? So it's like, um, yeah. I just, yeah, I don't fit that, that particular who, who, um, who is exa- Who has exemplified that stereotype? Is it uh, a musical uh, stereotype? Like, is it from music or is it from film? Uh, I'm just curious. I think there are some references to sort of like that in film. Like there's a film called Essex Boys, I believe, about a killing that happened in Essex, you know, drug dealers and stuff in the 90s. But um I don't know where it comes. I think there's like a really, you know, back in the like late eighties, early nineties, like the whole rave culture really seeped in here and it's quite hedonistic and quite, and then there's a seafront near to where I live where people just used to, you know, drive cars on a Friday night and just drive them really fast. And that was kind of like a hobby, uh, I <laughs> for, okay. for the, for the, uh, the, the other side of kind of like, you know, Essex boys and stuff. But, I just really, I couldn't tell you, man. I mean, I, my dad was a painter. I'd grown up in art circles my whole life. And yeah. I just I just sort of, um, actually in a weird kind of way, our town, you know, has, has become more and more arty uh, the older I've got, you know, great record shops. You know, like I say, I work at the university teaching, you know, songwriting a few days a week and a bit of music business and things. So I'm lucky in, in so many, we're so close to London, a lot of culture, you know, kind of cross-pollinates from up you know, from down here to up there and vice versa. Yeah. But, but I think, you know, you know, I think Essex is generally known for kind of like what it used to be, which is kind of like, you know, uh, 
promiscuous uh, sexual behavior and kind of like you know sort of alphas you know so and, um, mm. but i don't think that's really the reality of the way things are at all and maybe it never was okay all right so there's some something in the atmosphere that suggests it's a certain way but maybe that that it doesn't sound like that was your lived experience so that's fascinating in itself uh you mentioned that your uh father was a painter you uh, are familiar with sort of art circles you you described it as um I'm curious about how you got into music as a fan and then as a player. Can you talk about that? Certainly as a fan first. I thought I was going to, you know, I was really into drawing and stuff. I guess I was so influenced by my dad. Um, So I was always drawing as a kid. I'd never picked an instrument up. And then when I was at secondary school uh, in the first year, there was a lot of really cool music out at the time. And then there was this one guy, I don't even know what his name was, but he was in in the top year. And uh, he used to just be like shredding like Jimi Hendrix at lunchtime, just in the music room. And then he was such a, he was like James Dean kind of character. He, at one point he locked the music teacher in the music cupboard and then he just sparked a fag and just walked out of the school, just never came back. And I was just like, wow. Whoa. You know what I mean? At that age, I was kind of like, what a, what a kind of, uh, I didn't, I, don't know, I certainly don't want to be like that, but I was kind of impressed that he, uh, he had the balls to do something like that. Cause I think the guy was, kind of cruel to him and said that the music he did he liked was kind of didn't have value and he should be listening to classical music or something so um around that time i just started teaching myself guitar and uh, my good friend leon who i grew up with um we did some bands when we were younger together he kind of i remember him showing me how to play a power chord in maths in like year nine and i just showed doing the shape with his hand and it just kind of went from there but what really happened for me is like i got more and more into writing and more and more into playing with uh, uh, you know, other musicians. I loved collaboration, but um, when I, I when I was eighteen, I, I had like a kind of I had meningitis, and um, oh jeez, I, I saw it was a pretty serious uh, kind of couple of months for me. And then I kind of came out of that experience, and I just re- I just remember thinking, that's what I want to do. I just I love music, and I just can't stop collecting records. And when I wake up, I think about it. You know, I think about it all day, and I I think just my love of painting and drawing just kind of fused with with musicianship and stuff and then i just sort of ended up becoming a songwriter and a singer and um ne- never having much uh kind of sort of confidence but um around uh my 18th or 19th birthday uh there was this thing called in the city in manchester which would pick like the 50 best bands in the country you know in their estimation and they picked a band i was doing at the time and we got we went up to manchester to this thing and a couple of record labels were like really interested and and i kind of thought oh maybe i should maybe i should do this so then i kind of went away and studied music and and i never really looked back it's just it's just a great passion of my like you know kind of adult life outside of friends and family really I yeah just, I live and breathe it which is why i did a label too i suppose yeah so you you live uh lived close enough to london and and some other cities where uh bands would and artists would come by and and play did you see any particular shows that inspired you uh, as a mu- as a oh, yeah. as a musician yeah one that i mean it, i probably should probably say something super cool but um um <laughs> i actually went to a really horrible commercial festival uh called v uh oh yeah the, the, Vir- the virgin festival or whatever it was yeah yeah in yeah. the late 90s actually and i was so young i think i was like 12 or something like that but um but beck was doing his Odelay stuff. Oh yeah. Uh, I think it was about a year into that kind of campaign and he did like a late afternoon slot. And I remember the DJ scratched smoke on the water as he came on and he came on, he was like Prince, you know, he had the new pollution video backdrop. Um, and he was like doing the splits, playing instruments, you know, kind of hybrid band. Like, you know, I was used to with like the Beastie Boys or something like that, you know, rock musicians and hip hop stuff. And yep. I was just like, my, just my mouth just hit the floor. And, and I think, you know, Foo Fighters were on that day, you know, then back. And then I think the Prodigy were headlining. And I, I, I just came home and I was just like, yep, that's it. Music, music, music. <laughs> you know, so I just, I just, at the beginning of the, of the um, Prodigy set, and a band that I admire massively, but I don't listen to very often. But Keith Flint, the singer who sadly passed away a few years ago, yeah, yeah. he j- he just dived off the stage and he just didn't come back on stage until the end of the gig. <laughs> and I, I was just like, "This is amazing." <laughs> you know, and, uh, I was I was good friends with uh, Reese, uh, who is in a band called The Horrors from the UK, who, uh, quite quite a big 
big band and um we were kids at the time and we just sat on top of this like ice cream van and just playing with zippo lighters and pretending to smoke and just watching this massive show and it was just i think it left a big impression on both of us at that time really yeah well i i saw back in foo fighters uh around that same time that you did uh so uh and i saw that odelay tour uh, and so, yeah, the, the, those were, yeah, I can see how that would have a, a, an impact on you. Um, so let's jump ahead, I suppose. Where did asylums come? What is asylums? Where did it come from? Well, I think everyone in asylums had done like other bands and, um, uh, we were kind of, uh, approaching 30 really. And, um, I think just the motive had just totally, uh, been, uh, distorted for me. Like as you go through the journey of trying to find where you should be in music, it's like solving a mystery, <laughs> you know? And, uh, I was kind of in London rattling around on the tube for like eight, nine years doing various different projects, writing jobs, playing in bands, hustling, just trying to find an open door. You know what I mean? And, um, and then kind of, I had a meeting with a label, uh, that wanted to sign my band at the time and I it depressed me so much what they were saying I just went home and I just I just quit my band <laughs> what, what, were I, they, what were they saying um it was just it, it to be fair to the person that was speaking to me I can't even remember what his name was but I think the label was being funded by a hoover company and it was a tax write-off and and um the vacuum people yeah, yeah. Or maybe it was Dyson. I can't remember, but it certainly was Whoa, some, some connection to Hoover's. Yeah. And anyway, it was kind of like the the sort of streaming paradigm hadn't really arrived properly. And it was kind of the tail end of the illegal downloading period. And, and it, basically the guy was just saying, I just don't think the music industry works anymore to me. Hmm. And um, I kind of went home. And I tried to retrace my steps a little bit. And I was like, why did I do this? Why did I want to get into music? And the answer is quite simple. It's just, it's fun. And I just wanted to get back to having fun. Yeah. So, so I just uh, came off of all social media, put my phone in the drawer, didn't turn it back on for a few months. And I just got a little eight track at home, which I've always used. And I just, I just wrote a bunch of new songs and programmed all the beats and the drum parts up. And then I just called Mike, who was a friend of mine, and his, his band had just come to an end. And I said, dude, can you just, would you be up for a jam? Like, I just, I've got an idea for a new thing. And, and we started meeting up once a week, just, you know, real, really relaxed, just hanging out. He had some new songs and I would help him with his. And, uh, and then he would help me with mine. And then I did the same with the other two guys in a few months time. And, and we kind of just developed these songs separately. And then around Christmas 2013, we just went into a rehearsal room for the first time and played like a 10 song set together and it was just the easiest thing ever. It really clicked. And we really enjoyed each other's company. And we were like, oh, we don't really want to try and get a deal or anything like that. So we were just like, let's start a label too and have fun with that. And just what, what kind of seemed to happen was because we were in control, the sense of uh, measured achievement kind of went out the window. And we just kind of went on our own journey and we just haven't looked back really. And so we just incrementally built it with each album. And we were just so surprised when... Uh, like radio and press and people started to enthuse about it. And um, I guess there's a moral in that, you know, just do what you feel. Don't do what you think you should be doing. Yeah. Well, as I listen to Genetic uh, Cabaret, and forgive me if this is uh, off-putting anyway, but the, the term power pop came to <laughs> mind. Uh, is that, first of all, uh, uh, do we have to end the call? Are you mad at me? No, I'm not mad at you. I don't uh, I don't think of power pop as a particularly dirty uh, nomenclature or whatever you want to call it. To me, it just, you know, I love pop music, you know, R.E.M., Beatles, um, you know, kind of magnetic fields, you know, uh, great pop songwriting. But I think stylistically, I gravitate towards like, you know, Nation of Ulysses, you know, kind of Fugazi, things that have got more bite to them. So I think uh, bite, you know, but hooks like those bands you describe have hooks and choruses. Of and, course, of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I, I don't. Th- I, I, when I say power pop, and and my my hesitate, I don't know. By this point, it's probably called post power pop. I have no idea what these terms <laughs> even mean. But or pre power pop or pre power pop exactly. But there is this sort of sense of exuberance uh, and spirit. Uh, but like you say, there's a grit to it. Um, in your estimation. Uh, is uh, genetic cabaret some culmination of 
uh, you know, you guys exploring your sound together and coming up with, like, has it evolved as since the band started, uh, what did you say, like yeah. seven years ago? Yeah, th- we, we kind of put our first single out in like August 2014 and that, that tune was called The Death of Television and it was like a minute and a half long and it was just like crazy. It's had a video like made on a, you know, phone with like, sock puppets playing each member of the band it was totally juvenile and silly but underneath it all it was kind of a message about you know what what kind of social media really when i was growing up you know tv what's the brain and i was like just worried what what if if tv what's the brain what does social media do melt it do you know what i mean it's like <laughs> yeah so and so i was reading a lot about you know the dopamine kick of like social media and the addictive qualities and i so I think I, I suppose what I'm trying to say is like there's always been like a level of like you know kind of messaging but we kind of cover it up with like silliness a little bit because we don't want to come off preachy and maybe what has changed over the three records we've put out I think the first one was more of a kind of like Sex Pistols Never Mind the Bollocks kind of an album it was quite one-dimensional intentionally and uh, quite fast the second one was you know kind of a bit of more experimental we you know some slower songs as well as the fast ones and stuff and I think like as we were approaching making the third one, we just wanted to bring all our best attributes together and 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 strip back some of the unnecessary layers and just really get to the heart of what it is for the four of us to play together with good songs and, and good words, you know? Yeah, I, I appreciate that. That makes sense. You, you Earlier you were talking about this, uh, the, you know, various factors that had influenced your songwriting um, for this record. Can you identify some particular themes that like as the record's been out a little bit now and i know that when i put something out sometimes my opinion of it changes i process like before you hit publish on something i find you think it's one thing and then when it's done for better or for worse you're like oh no this is another thing um i wonder if you've had that sensation and if so has it been brought to you to have themes on this record uh in your in terms of the lyricism has something been brought to your attention that surprised you? And within that, I mean, can you talk about what you were kind of, if, if there's an overarching theme here on this record? Yeah, most of our albums have kind of an arc to them. Um, I suppose the main thing that I didn't bargain for, I was quite nervous to put this record out. I thought that, you know, kind of, it wasn't as instant as certain things that we had done, but it it was a better body of work as a whole and that's what i really wanted to do and i know the boys felt that way we just wanted to make a good rounded rock record for the modern world but like with the things that have happened so we started marketing the record like you know in january last year and by the time we got to the second single off it the world was in lockdown and i th- what i didn't realize would happen was that people would be able to relate to some of the themes on it you know themes of isolation yeah you know everyone in my band has, has certainly had episodes of like poor mental health and you know low moods and stuff, low self-esteem, um, and creativity has always been the thing that's kind of got us through and brought us into a community of kind people that you know make us feel better and stuff, and it still does. But it seemed to me like maybe some other people, especially journalists, maybe that were writing about it that that, that were very complimentary about the record. It did get very nice reviews and stuff. I just think there maybe there there was more relatability that and I had bargained for with the topics on the album. I was hmm. surprised by that. Right. Okay. And that's you don't feel like you were prescient. It's a bit of a coincidence on some level that you were writing about these themes and then so many more people uh, were experiencing them on some level. Yeah, totally. I mean, like, we we run our record label out of a tiny room in my garden and it's and it's all for all for love you know what i mean it's it's certainly not a business in the traditional sense but you know we charted in the um independent charts like i think we went in at like in the 30 or something like that and um but there were no shops open i was like how what you know where where are people getting the record right, you know? and it's, right. they were just they were just buying it like from they were just coming to our social media and stuff and so I, I certainly felt a sort of strange skewed pride of like, wow, we managed to do that. How did we do that? And then, and then kind of, I was just nervous at some point. That, um, I just didn't want to come off as having an opinion about everyone else's situation. I just, no, it was, yeah. I was, you know, so it just, it just was, it was intended as poetry, as art, not to be too specific. There's a song on there, like for instance, called the distance between left and right. 
And uh, I, you know, it's written from a neutral perspective, but it's about the polarization during the Brexit debate and stuff. But of course, the whole when that song kind of, I mean, Spotify gave it like two playlists and stuff, and I was like, "What?" It's like the heaviest tune on the album. I was so confused, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I but, think, but happy, you know. I think we're we're all more open to heavy sentiments at the moment, um, for yeah, whatever yeah. reason, whether they make us feel. Uh, good or bad, it's just uh, relatable. Like, oh, I this everything feels heavy. Oh, this band uh, is also uh, you know conveying something that's heavy. I'm not alone. Like sometimes conveying heavy stuff makes people who feel isolated uh, feel like they're not the only ones having those those thoughts and feelings. You know, I've certainly found that as a music fan as well, being gravitating to the extremes. You know, yeah. really, yeah. really stripped back stuff, but really, really intense stuff too. Yeah. Well, speaking of stripped back and intense, you traveled to Chicago uh, to make this record with uh, my friend Steve Albini. And I wonder if you can talk, first of all, about that impulse. People have all sorts of reasons why they might want to work with Steve. Uh, but for you guys in particular, like you, you, that's quite a trek. What, why, yeah. wh- why do this? Why did you want to go and work with Steve? Well, it certainly wasn't something that we thought um, we were going to do when we started the band. We would have loved to. Have. It would, we probably would have dropped dead if someone had said we would get to d- have the chance to do it. But just, uh, you know, to be completely honest, on the, on the second album, by the time we were done on that, we were all completely burnt out. And, um, you know, I don't mind admitting I went to therapy and got some, got some kind of perspective on where I was in life. I think I was trying to reconcile the idea of having a child and had this turbulent life that I was living and uh, anyway, the the outcome of that was, you know, it's okay to not know what's going to happen. I kind of had that sentiment, and I just said to the band, "Can we take six months off?" Yeah, I just I just want to riot, and I just want to just the world to calm down. I mean, if I'd known, I would have waited a year, but because um, <laughs> you know, I've been at home for months now. But um, but anyway, um, what happened was we kind of we we got off the road, um, and in November uh, two thousand and eighteen. I kind of had recuperated enough. I did an application to the arts, uh, to the uh, PRS Momentum Fund, which is the royalties collecting body in the UK. Oh, okay. And I, pl- I applied for a grant because uh, we had done really well on the first two albums. We'd had a lot of support across the media and sold a good amount of records considering the kind of music we make. And, um, and to my disbelief, they awarded us 12 grand. And then at the same time, I also got a publishing deal as a songwriter. And so for the first time in my adult life, we had some disposable income. And wow. probably the, the shrewd thing to do would, would be to buy some, invest in something or buy something. But we decided that uh, it was like, you know, kind of uh, a dream of all of ours to make a record in the States. And there was only one man on the list, really. <laughs> and, um, and we wanted to go on kind of some sort of strange punk rock pilgrimage to electrical audio and have a bit of an adventure yeah. and uh, make a record in a short space of time because we do work and stuff. He's the man to do that. You know, he's fantastic. The, you know, one, one of the best engineers that's ever lived. And um, he's got this wonderful shrine to cult music uh, in electrical audio. And so we just we just thought, fuck it, throw it all on the roulette wheel, let's go. And um it, it just galvanized our energies. We were excited. We didn't want to look stupid in front of Steve as musicians. We wanted, we really worked hard on the music. We rehearsed it up. And then on my birthday, we flew out there and um, turned up massively, uh, you know, kind of drunk and jet lagged, had a sleep, woke up and then started cutting tracks. And, uh, you know, Steve Albini is a lovely human being. And mm. uh, I feel like... Um, it's an experience that I personally will never forget. It, it was almost, you know, it kind of healed every bad experience I'd had in one week. That's awesome. That's great to hear. Congratulations on all of that uh, success, external, uh, you know, the, the grant and the publishing deal. That's great. That's always gratifying, I'm sure, uh, for people uh, who are wondering about those things and hoping for those kinds of things. I'm sure you felt great about that. Um, I think for some people listening, there's this thought uh, and you know, a daydream about what it might be like to work uh, with Steve and go to electrical audio. And I wonder if you can contemplate what you thought it was going to be like uh, before you left and then the reality of doing it. Like, what was, was there a difference? Were they, were they the same? (laughs) Well, can you comment on that? Yeah, there were, there were, there were, 
I suppose, you know, the first thing is, you know, because we are massive fans of not only his bands, but, the, you know, all sorts of music that he's produced through the years in all different shapes and sizes and sounds. But I think, you know, we, we, we knew what we were getting into. We, we know Steve's ethos. We know that, you know, kind of the creative decision making is left to the, the band and he, he, you know, facilitates the technical you know side of things getting it down but also he's not passive in the slightest he's he, he adds so much to I, th- I feel like he just knows how to steer you without telling you what to do if you know what I mean and um and I, I couldn't there's nothing I could say about his engineering skills that would do them justice he's just he's fantastic and he knows that you know every microphone he has exactly you know all the classic stuff you'd expect but what I didn't bargain for is that we get on really well I, I you know we I think I uh, we were we were really nervous, uh, of course, you know, and I, I'm sure you know Steve's got a hard job. He has to meet a new band every week, and kind of, you know, that you're in an intense working environment together. I'm sure it's thrilling, but at times, if you you know, it must, must be exhausting to always, uh, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Have to build those bonds and stuff. But about three or four days in, I think um, we were laughing and joking about something, and I just showed him this <laughs> from a friend had sent me this strange YouTube clip of like this sock puppet dinosaur that was a cocaine addict and uh, <laughs> and he was just doing like loads of cocaine and going crazy in this clip and i just showed it to steve and he was just like in tears laughing and i think from that point on he realized that you know you know as we both did we put you know we're, we're not too dissimilar you know okay we're probably a bit more uptight englishmen and stuff but um <laughs> and, and we certainly are pretty obsessive when it comes to harmonies like you know um so i think we probably drained his will to live at times you know kind of doing uh, quite a few takes on things uh, vocally because I think we, you know, I think probably we just love the Beatles so much and stuff, you know, so we just, we punish ourselves on that. But the music, God, I think we did all, all the tracks on the album in like two and a half, three days, uh, you know, in terms of like the, the raw tracking. And I was so impressed that, you know, his ethos is just, you know, he just could produce a result like that so quickly and hats up to him. What a guy. That's the best feeling in the world when you uh, are anticipating a recording session and you're done tracking. I mean, that's it's an unmatched feeling isn't it it is although i would throw in that for me it's almost like the night before being hung because uh i have to do all the vocals next <laughs> oh of course right yeah i've I've not had well i have had the experience of being the singer but not as much as that yeah that's true that's a different everyone else is can kind of chill but the <laughs> singer's work has just chill. begun yeah and that's yeah to be the only one doing something yeah that's got to be weird yeah I, I, that's true i've experienced that um steve has a a fun uh habit of uh uh kind of highlighting perhaps even making fun of certain regional regional things did he have fun with your britishness at all like anything that came I think to mind so. yeah i think so because we kind of have been self-sufficient for so many years me and Henry, uh, the drummer, we kind of have a shorthand with one another to get through vocal sessions because we've always typically done them when we're all completely shot to shit, tired, like because yeah. we're using downtime or, you know, we're in some studio paying like half rate or something. And and so we've always, we've got into this thing where we're like, okay, do it again. And that one, and then and this, this syllable, that blah, 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 blah. And it all gets <laughs> a bit, I think for an outsider, I think he was like, what the fuck is wrong with these two? Do you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> but we didn't realize how weird we were coming off. I think at times we were just trying to get the job done. So I saw of apologize to steve for being hard work for a couple of days while we we're doing vocals but um i think um you know outside of uh, of that um he just made me laugh a lot every time i would ask a question he would say meow <laughs> uh, like a cat and uh, and it just made me laugh more and more as time went on and uh i found a pair of cat socks when we had a day off and uh, i was a bit pissed and i thought oh I'll, I'll go and drop them in the studio and then you'll see him when he comes in and i i suddenly you know, woke up the next morning. I was like, shit, I think I put them on the mixing desk and there was like a mix on there, you know, so, yeah. but luckily, luckily they'd fallen off. So I, I, I don't think I affected the, the, the music or anything, but I think just that level of like kind of quirkiness and fun. We, we would talk about some records that he had made that had British artists on them. Um, you know, s- sort of we, uh, one record that I really like, which I think is really underrated as a record is um, the second Jarvis Cocker solo album, which he did with Steve Albini. And, um, it's just a great, really angular. It almost sounds like something that could have come out in like 79, 80, 80, 81, oh. kind of post-punk era. It's, it's totally different from anything Jarvis Cocker's ever done. It's got this great sort of almost swell maps kind of quality to it. So we spoke about that and he told us a great story about the 
guitarist that was playing on that project was actually like his postman and he had joined the he had joined he'd heard Jarvis working on music in the <laughs> house and had said I play guitar and they sort of hooked up and did some stuff together but then the poor sod died you know what I mean like about oh, a year no. later and it's oh. like so and I you know and we were just like God like what you just you couldn't what a story do you know what I mean you know yeah, it's like yeah. and I, I felt I mean obviously you know on a kind of um sincere level it's like tragic you know but um i think the point of telling the story was kind of almost like you know even that guy got to sort of realize a dream as well you know somewhere in the in the in the span of his uh, you know time you know so yeah that was kind of nice we spoke a bit about when iggy recorded there and stuff um oh yeah cool. and i think you know kind of he said like one leg short than the other kind of thing and but one thing uh he said to us about being british i think was um there was a bass line in a song on the album called Platitudes. And uh, I think he was like, that's very swing in 60s, that, you know, because <laughs> it had a, kind of, had a kind of almost like Paul McCartney quality to it, it was like kind of bop, bopping around quite a, quite a mobile sort of bass line. And I thought that was quite cute, just that little observation. I like uh, stories about little Steve-isms, like the meow thing and the swing in <laughs> 60s. I remember I once was confirming, uh, we'd started an email thread about it, probably about an interview. And I sent him something confirming the time and date. And instead of writing back to be like, sounds good, he all he wrote back was sexy. <laughs> and I just, that just made me chuckle. And he's a funny guy. He's just a funny, strange, and uh, yeah, very, uh, I, I love, yeah, I love that guy. So I appreciate uh, those stories. And I'm glad you had such a great experience at Electrical Audio. Um, record's great. It's, as I mentioned, uh, well, as we've talked about, I mean, what do you do now? You can't tour. You took six months off from the road, ostensibly, I would guess, so you could concentrate yeah. on on stuff. And now, in a sense, I'm gathering, if it's anything like here, you don't really have a choice in the matter now. You have to take a little hiatus from the road. So what do you do with Genetic Cabaret at this point? Uh, and beyond that record and these songs, what's next for you? Do you know what? You know, we've tried to embrace it as a kind of uh, as an interesting experiment. You know, some of my favorite music were done was done by bands that took live hiatuses. You know, I, I love, you know, uh, Automatic for the People and Out of Time by R.E.M. You know, I've mentioned them before today and, you know, kind of and the records that the beat was made after after the Shea Stadium. And um, I kind of was like, well, maybe maybe something interesting could come out of this. Why don't we put the emphasis on creating moments, you know? And, um, you know, for instance, on Sunday, we were recording a four-song set at a studio about half an hour from here, and we've, we dressed the thing out. And, it, you know, kind of we're gonna, it's the first time we'll play as a full band for for months but we've never rehearsed much you know we, we we're quite disciplined at home we we prepare and we meet up and we don't do more than a couple of rehearsals normally anyway before we do anything hmm. um and so like we're going to go and do that and then we'll kind of you know we'll offer that out to people you know to for coverage and stuff and and then we'll just keep doing moments like that for the for for a while we, we also just set up the album release in germany um so I've, I've got to do a couple of interviews tomorrow um for some german magazines and um and so we'll look at that territory and then you know really and truly we've already got like um a time frame for making the next record next summer and so i think you know in the absence of uh you know being able to tour i think you know one thing we've always loved and i think this is probably why we've got three albums out in three you know three or four years is, is we just love making records so yeah you know, I like the Brian Jonestown Massacre as a band. I think, you know, they make a lot of albums. They don't always tour heavily behind every record. It's it's more like a creative continuum that they're, you know, that, and I, I love the Magnetic Fields as well. They don't always tour heavily. So I, I, I don't see it as an immediate problem for us because we're not reliant on it as an income, although I have huge amount of empathy for the people it does affect. Yeah. And we'll do anything we can to help support you know, the live sector and the arts in general. But for us, just as four human beings, I think we just, we're just going to put the emphasis on making stuff. Well, that's great. Like I say, trying to find the, uh, the gift in all of this, the gifts in all of this is, uh, I think it's rather crucial. And it sounds like you have a, a healthy uh, attitude and disposition towards it. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. And uh, I'm sure you and your friends and family, Luke, are also thankful that you're doing okay with this uh, 
in, in a, you know, <laughs> looking on the bright side of all of this on some level. Um, I, I think my dad's struggling a little bit. I, I, you know, I love my dad. He's, uh, he, I think I'm neurotic, but my dad's like neurotic times 10. I oh, love him though. Yeah. All the creative madness comes from, from, uh, uh, Papa branch. And, uh, I think <laughs> He's just he's just in his little studio out in the back garden, just like I am, just painting like furiously, you know. So I just need to try and convince him to do some exhibitions because he's doing some great stuff. He just did a painting for an Ian Jury exhibition that got pulled, which was oh, it's just a great painting, you know. Really, almost had a kind of you know had a kind a, a, a kind of uh, Peter Blake quality to it or something, you know. Oh, cool. What's your sorry? What's your father's name? Tony Branch, although Tony. Uh, he can't, he, he he is actually the naked the naked man on the front cover of the album showing his penis to the riot police. Oh, um, that is my dad. Uh, but me and him collaborate. Is that a real him. photo? No, no, okay. no, no. It's, uh, it's been stitched together. But um, but I before I went to Electric Audio, I made a really crude collage of what I wanted the front and back cover to look like, and me and my dad have done that on pretty much everything since the beginning of the band you know he's a really cool illustrator and i kind of ruined his career by being born so um <laughs> so it's my, it's my way of returning some sort of uh yeah they were giving it you know getting sort of uh into some some fun stuff together and uh so he made that i think my mum uh took that picture of him I th- maybe that makes them amateur pornographers i don't really know but um <laughs> well, yeah but nevertheless yeah <laughs> Who isn't these days, frankly? Uh, if <laughs> oh, people <laughs> if people people want to learn more about Asylums and uh, this album, uh, Genetic Cabaret, where would you like to send them, Luke? Oh, that's the question, isn't it? Um, it's hard to uh, not put a bias out there. It's one platform or another. I think you know. In the first instance, just check us out on Facebook, Asylums UK. You know, we we're always posting stuff there. We've got you know classic stuff, Instagram as well, but. For, for substance, you know, the Cool Thing Records uh, YouTube channel is a good place to start. All our videos are on there, as well as all the videos from the bands that we work with. And, and also, I think the Bandcamp, the Cool Thing uh, uh, Records Bandcamp is a good place to start as well. All our kind of physical products are up there and okay. little tape cassettes and quirky things. There's even a uh, a, a parody of four Garbage Pal kids, uh, which are like us, uh, which we, me and, you know, my dad did. And that's kind of fun. We sold quite a few of them along with some tapes and stuff. But yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know what to say. I think, uh, you know, our Spotify page oscillates between, you know, disappointing statistics and, 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 and good statistics, depending on what month it is. But I don't pay any attention to any of it, really. I just... I think probably Facebook would be to answer your question. Finally, Vish, off this long monologue, <laughs> probably, probably Facebook. Okay, I I will recommend Bandcamp because then people can actually uh, buy your stuff. I assume and listen yeah, to it, yeah. yeah, as opposed to some of these other things. So, uh, okay, oh, actually, shit. Why well, think about it, Vish? Uh, apart from the new album, because that's still being sold on a separate site. So I'll ping that over to you. It's on a T Store site. So I'll ping okay, that over. okay, all right. We'll figure this out. All of us will figure this out together. <laughs> I appreciate that, Luke. If we can go out on a song from uh, Genetic Cabaret, I hope you might uh, choose one for us, and also maybe talk about why you chose it. Oh, now that's one to pick. Um, I'll probably pick something fast. I'm going to pick Platitudes. Um, I really like that song. I'm, I'm proud of it. Um, I think the reason I like it, on a musical level, it kicked my ass. I must have tried every section of the song in every key that exists in music um, <laughs> because it had this massive jump from the chorus to the verse because I wrote it in a different octave on piano and blah, blah, blah. I digress. But... Um, so it was the anatomy of the song was a real challenge to make feel natural. And then it finally locked and it did feel natural. And I was like, oh, what a relief. But then uh, a lot of the words in it were kind of, um, I was rereading uh, some J.G. Ballard stuff. And I was watching some interviews with like Stephen King about, you know, kind of his writing process. And some of those little uh, kind of things that I was getting reacquainted with kind of filtered into some of the words. So when I listened to it, I kind of, I imagine a little bit of Crash and a little bit of um, a little bit of uh, J.G. Ballard stroke David Cronenbergisms in there. So, oh, interesting. But, uh, but to the rest of the world, it probably just sounds like a kind of a fast, kind of buzzcock sesh tune. But well, for me, I, a, I'm sure the the context might uh, might inform how uh, people listen to it now. I, I appreciate that. So, yeah, let's hear. It. This is Platitudes by Asylums. Uh, Luke, thank you so much for uh, making time for me and uh, being on the show, and I wish you the best of luck with everything going forward. Thanks so much, Vise. I love your show, and thanks for having us on. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, one thing Luke and I did not even discuss was the fact that uh, he also is involved in something called London Soho Radio, and I was a guest on there uh, this year, I want to say. Is it still 2020? It feels like it's been five years in one year. But yeah, I was on that show, London Soho Radio. So it was nice to return the favor and have Luke Branch of Asylums on this, the 576th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network. And is available wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Google, Spotify. It's on YouTube in a, in a way. It's on everything. So if, you, uh, if you're listening to this on something and you don't like it, find the thing you like and the show should be there. So there you go. Uh, oh, actually, if you can't find an episode that you've heard about and you're looking for on any of the platforms that you normally access, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my semi-regularly scheduled newsletter, I should just say monthly aiming for monthly with the newsletter these days. In any case, if you want to do any of those things, please visit my website, vishkana.com. You can also like Creative Control on Facebook. You can follow the show on Twitter at vishcreative or follow me directly at vishkana. Also visit patreon.com slash creativecontrol to make a flexible monthly donation to sustain this podcast as I speak to you. We've lost some patrons. We lost a couple of patrons. I don't know what happened. I don't know what it was. Uh, it was a bad episode or what? Maybe it's just uh, the way it goes, but we've gained a bunch and then we lost two. So if you'd like to support the show with a financial donation, I know times are tough, but it would be helpful. So go to patreon.com slash creative control and uh, whatever you want to donate, you can change it at any time. $6 or more gets you access to uh, exclusive access to audio content that isn't part of the regular podcast, but you don't have to do that. $6 or less is fine or $5. I mean, it could be less than six, whatever. Patreon.com slash creative control to keep this show going. Thanks again to live at MasseyHall.com where you can watch beautifully captured concerts by great Canadian artists. Also, Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton for their in kind support for the show. As always, thanks to Jim Guthrie. He lends me some music for the program. You can learn more about Jim and his work at jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode with Luke from Asylums. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you uh, subscribe to this podcast or follow it or whatever your platform asks you to do to keep up with it. Check out some back episodes, yeah, older ones, and there's always newer ones, it seems. So, yeah, that's it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Send me a note if you want to. Otherwise, I will talk to you soon. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.